Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's Banking Editor. Today we'll be talking to Andrew Spooner, a partner at Deloitte. Also joining me in the studio are Lindsay Fortado, our hedge fund correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. We'll also hear from Claire Jones, our Frankfurt bureau chief. And this week we'll be taking a look at the news that Value Act, an activist fund investor, has taken a $1 billion stake in Morgan Stanley. Secondly, we'll be asking whether banks are ready for a major accounting change heading their way, known as IFRS 9. And finally, we'll hear about how the pressure of negative interest rates is manifesting itself in various bizarre ways across the sector. Starting with Morgan Stanley and Value Act, on Monday evening, Value Act, this activist hedge fund, revealed that it had acquired a 2% stake in the investment bank worth about a billion dollars and becoming its eighth biggest investor. But instead of announcing a list of demands that activist hedge funds usually do, it called the discount that the shares are trading at an extraordinary discount and endorsed the strategy of chief executive James Gorman. This comes as a bit of a surprising move by Value Act. And here to discuss it with me is Lindsay Fortado, our hedge fund correspondent. Lindsay, US bank executives have long feared the arrival of activist investors, but very few of them have been targeted, even though the sector has performed relatively poorly since the financial crisis. Why is that? And what can you read into the move taken by Value Act? I think that part of the reason is it's too difficult for activist investors to control banks. They're so large and so unwieldy. I mean, just looking at this investment, Value Act had to take a $1.1 billion stake just to get a 2% holding in the company. So it's massive. You have to invest quite a bit. But so much is out of their control as well. I mean, it's out of banking management's control. If you look at all of the regulation, that's out of their control. I think Lex made a very good point in their column saying that Value Act is effectively betting that the Fed is going to raise low interest rates or that it will stop ratcheting up capital requirements. What's the history here of activist investing in the banking sector? And have we seen many examples of this come to a successful outcome? We haven't, to be honest. Like I said, I mean, banks are just a bit too big to target. They face these huge fines. They face litigation risks. It's just too much of a risk for hedge funds. I guess one of the most high profile examples here in Europe would be Sevian getting involved in Danske Bank. That one's been pretty much behind the scenes. Sevian is one of the activist investors that doesn't like to make a lot of noise. They don't take on public campaigns. So it's been kind of quiet and behind the scenes, but they have made quite a big impact there. But in terms of Wall Street banks, we haven't seen much. We saw UBS got targeted. And HSBC, I think, yep. uh, both of those by Knight Vinky, but yep. without much without much influence. success and not, not a really large stake. And actually a public and... reprimand for Knight Vinky. Mm-hmm. And some of the custody banks, State Street and Bank of New York Mellon, have both been targeted recently. But I think yep. maybe it's a reflection of the fact that banks are so heavily regulated and so politically sensitive that hedge funds tread relatively lightly when they start to target them and, and do it in a more consensual way. That's perhaps the lesson here that we're seeing from the 
few examples we do have. And hedge funds have trading relationships with a lot of these banks. They know the folks that work there. They're sort of too connected. It's a bit too close for comfort. Mm -hmm. Okay, Lindsay, thanks very much. On to our second subject. A story in this week's Financial Times revealed that nearly half of big banks around the world feel they are unprepared for a new or incoming international accounting standard due to take force in less than two years, even as they expect provisions for bad loans to soar as a result of these new rules. Joining me on the line from Deloitte, the consultancy that carried out this survey of 91 banks across the world, is Andrew Spooner, a partner there. Andrew, it seems as though banks have known this change known as IFRS 9 has been coming for a while, but they're not ready for it. Tell us, first of all, what is IFRS 9? What does it mean? IFRS 9 is the new international financial reporting standard, which covers, amongst other things, bad debts on loans. And um, you're right, this has been coming for a while, and it comes in in 2018. Fundamentally, what it does is change the way that we record bad debts on loans. And we're moving really from something where we previously referred to as an incurred loss model, which pretty much meant that we record a loss when it was likely to happen. And then we're moving to an expected loss model, which is, as it sounds, far more forward-looking. So banks will be looking at their portfolio of assets and they'll be recording a provision for expected credit losses. And the expected credit losses can, depending on the credit quality, be over a short period or potentially calculating expected losses over quite a long period. Okay. And what was the findings of your survey? It seems as though many of the banks are saying they're really struggling to get prepared for the introduction of these new rules. They don't have the resources. They're not finding enough skilled candidates. What are the main findings? Well, we did see a mixed picture. This has been around for a while, but I think what's really struck over the, I guess, the last kind of year to 18 months is actually how difficult it is. And one of the challenges is, of course, that if you look at the way banks look at their loan books at the moment, obviously a lot of them, a vast majority, are performing loans. So, in fact, they don't actually have a bad debt. But with the move to an expected loss model, they have to look at their whole portfolio. And, of course, there could be an expected loss in the future. And therefore, if you think of the coverage, they're having to do these calculations over a far bigger portfolio of assets than they did before. Now, if you couple that with, I guess, the systems and the data requirements for looking more forward than we did in the past, that itself brings certain challenges. And I think one of the other things is that a lot of the credit risk information that exists within banks is often just you know, sat within the credit risk function of a bank, which makes sense. But now we're really kind of hardwiring some of those forward-looking estimates into finance, straight into the financial results of the bank. And really, it's plugging those information sets together is challenging. And with that, of course, it brings obviously systems issues, but governance and other really kind of operational issues that is actually making it more challenging. I mean, one of the other challenges is actually running forward-looking scenarios. So in the past, they didn't really have to do this, but now they're going to have to run forward-looking scenarios, economic scenarios of the future, and really see how their bank book would look 
subject to those different economic conditions. And clearly doing that in itself is a fairly complex exercise, similar to kind of stress testing. Yeah, I was going to say, aren't the banks already doing that sort of thing with the stress testing that they're having to carry out on behalf of the regulators and central banks? Yeah, they are doing it to a degree. And of course, the RFS numbers will ultimately come into the stress test in the future. But I think this potentially is more pervasive. And of course, a lot of this is based on specifically looking at the portfolios within the bank. And there was also, I guess, quite a change for doing it for regulatory purposes, as opposed to doing it in the financial reporting, in the financial statements, which, of course, is subject to audit. So there's a level of governance that would need to be included, as well as a level of oversight from auditors that they're going to have to get comfortable about these numbers. So in that sense, it is taking the stress tests and then adding to them in terms of complexity, which is something I think the banks always knew they were going to have to do, but it's turned out to be, frankly, harder than probably some of them had hoped. And am I right in saying that the US banks already have this kind of incurred loss model for uh, provisioning? Well, the incurred loss model, actually, today, the banks do something similar in the US as they do in the international arena outside of the US, i.e. the IFRS banks. So in fact, we're on a similar situation at the moment. But of course, both systems have changed to be an expected loss model. So the IFRS 9 is the introduction expected loss model for banks outside of the US, i.e. with bank operations headed outside the US. But in the US, they have now introduced their own expected loss model as well, which is similar, but it's not the same. Those recent reforms came out this year as well. So the US banks are also heading on a path of introducing expected loss accounting to impairment provisions. But you know, if you look at it globally, all banks are going to be subject to this where previously they were not. Okay. Just to bring in Caroline. Caroline, we've seen some headlines in the past few months with very big numbers as to how much this could increase the bad loss provisioning for the big banks. Tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of extra provisions have been warned of. How scared should investors and banks be about these new accounting rules? Well, I think unsurprisingly, the banks were concerned, according to the survey results, that this would have a negative impact on their bottom lines in terms of their capital ratios. In this instance, they were forecasting that there would be at least a half percent decrease in their common tier one equity, which is obviously one of the most keenly watched benchmarks. But I think also you have to bear in mind that this isn't happening in isolation. This is also happening at a time when banks generally are going through quite a lot of structural reform, not to mention a lot of the policies that are being tweaked at a global level by Basel. And of course, that gets us back into the debate as to whether there is or is not a Basel four round of capital raising. The policymakers obviously say they're not and that's just tweaks, but the banks say fundamental changes are taking place. Okay, so it's one more ball for the banks to juggle in terms of uh, capital requirements and regulatory changes, but uh, it could be a major one. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the findings that Deloitte made was that the banks that have actually made the right calculations as to how IFRS 9 is going to impact their books, that's a minority, I should point out, but those banks reckon that the changes will result in at least a rise of 25% in total impairment provisions across all asset classes. Okay. So switching to our third subject, which is the impact of negative interest rates on the sector. And joining me on the line to discuss a story we ran in the FT is Claire Jones, our Frankfurt Bureau Chief. And the story looked at the idea of financial institutions keeping piles of cash in high security vaults. Something that sounds like a line from an old movie plot, but in fact it is apparently on the agenda of banks and insurers as interest rates sink below zero across much of Europe. 
And in fact, this is response to the cost of these institutions for keeping their funds stored at the central bank. That cost has increased to over two and a half billion euros since negative rates began with the ECB in 2014. So Claire, how many institutions are actually doing this, taking their money out of the central banks and putting it into a vault? Well, at the moment, it's been limited to Munich Re, the German insurer, which did try earlier this year, successfully, it says, to try to store a double-digit million sum of euros in cash at a manageable cost. But we've also heard from Commerzbank, Germany's second largest lender, that it would perhaps consider doing this as well. And there's also been murmurs from insurers in Switzerland, too, that it's something that they may look into. I don't think anyone is doing it just at the moment, in part because there's a bit of a first mover problem here. No one wants to be the first one to try it, really. But if rates continue to head further below zero, I think it becomes more likely and more of an option. Do the economics actually add up? I mean, your story talked about the all-in cost of insurance and vaulting. Renting a vault from a bank is an expensive thing. Insuring the cash that you're holding there, all of these things add up. Transporting it, the actual physical banknotes, the cost is 0.5 to 1% of the funds you're looking to store, your story said. So the numbers don't seem to quite add up in terms of this being an economically attractive thing to do. I think you're absolutely right that it doesn't really add up at the moment. At the moment, the ECB is charging what amounts to a levy of 0.4% of quite a lot of banks' deposits. The banks in Europe, apart from a few exceptions, haven't really passed on these charges to their customers. So the banks are really taking the hit for negative rates. But it's going to cost more than the 0.4% levy they're being charged at the moment to switch it into cash. I think the thing that really surprised me when I was researching this piece was just how costly it would be to insure a large amount of cash. This isn't something that's ever really been done before. What tends to happen is banks get hold of the cash and then the cash goes to ATMs pretty quickly. So it's a bit of a novel idea and it's uncertain exactly how insurers would react to this. If more banks did it, it would perhaps lower the cost of insurance. But at the moment, people think it would cost between 0.5% and 1% just to insure a loan. And then, as you say, you've got the transport costs and you've also got the storage costs too. Yeah. And, and we're talking about a huge amount of money here. We're talking about nearly a trillion euros of funds that are stored with the central bank by banks and other financial institutions. Is that right? So presumably they would have to print some more notes if they were all to ask for that money. Well, it's difficult to say. I mean, you have a little over a trillion worth of banknotes in circulation at the moment. So there'd clearly be a big rise in the number of banknotes in circulation if private banks would start to seriously consider this policy and take the money out of the central bank and hoard it in cash. However, the amount in circulation does not reflect the amount of banknotes that you have. All of the central banks tend to keep a stockpile of notes in storage just to account for a rise in demand for banknotes. The central banks are very cagey for obvious reasons about exactly how much they have in storage, but they would say that, you know, rest assured, if banks did want to withdraw the electronic money and turn it into cash, that they would be able to fulfil those demands. What lesson can we take from these mostly mutterings, really, apart from Munich Re, as you said? Is this the banks sending a message to their central banking colleagues that, you know, there is a limit to how 
negative interest rates can become before it starts to have this rather perverse effect? Yeah, I think part of it is definitely about sending a message. I mean, the policy becomes useless if this happens on a mass level. The policy is supposed to be because banks are having to pay this levy, banks are supposed to go out and seek riskier, more profitable opportunities. If banks are hoarding cash instead, the policy doesn't really work in the way that it's supposed to. So it is about sending a message, I think, to to central banks that banks feel as though their profitability is really being squeezed by this policy and they want to give central banks some idea that they think there is some flaw to their willingness and ability to cope with negative rates. And their argument when they're asked, well, why don't you just go and lend the money out and find profitable uses for it, is that there isn't the demand, that the economies of Europe are so sluggish, the growth is so sluggish, that there isn't huge amounts of demand for them to go and huge op- attractive opportunities for them to put this money to work. That's the answer I hear from most bankers I ask. Is that right? Yeah, and I think there's another issue in the sense that banks haven't really passed this on to many of their customers. Some of the big business customers are paying charges from negative rates, but because the banking market is so competitive here and there's so many banks, it hasn't been easy to really pass on the charges of negative rates to customers. So banks are quite constrained in that respect as well, I think. Yeah, certainly to retail customers. Nobody seems to dare to start charging retail customers negative interest rates. Claire Jones in Frankfurt, thank you very much for uh, joining us. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Andrew, Lindsay, Caroline and Claire for their contributions and thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.